Chapter 9. The Right-Hand Woman The smell from the freshly cut grass and its pollen reached Katie's nostrils. It reminded her of her primary school sports day. She'd sit cross-legged next to a wobbly marked-out running track, painted by the school's elderly caretaker. She remembered enjoying the aspiration of winning and the comradeship because the school competed as year groups and were further split into four groups named by colour. She remembered wearing her blue pin and sitting with the rest of the blues, keenly keeping track of which colour was in pole position for the day. When she grew to a teen, she lost touch with her sporty side and became more interested in partying and boys. The band of festival explorers proudly sat on their new throne-like seats, lining the side of the pitch. Their high raised backs and long arms gave a look of grandeur. Katie sat in the middle, next to the manager. Lynx was animated and excited. He sat upright and alert. He was a big sports fan, and this to him couldn't be any better. Alec, feeling on show, tried in vain to enjoy the match, but his shyness restrained him. Jane rested on Wraith's shoulder. Wraith was pleased to be close to the action, because he thought that was the best place to be to collect a memento. Katie eagerly sat next to the manager. Trying to be conspicuous, she studied his face. It was aged and ruggedly worn. He watched the match with a slight grin. His posture was upright and his arms folded. He didn't look anxious, but impatient. He appeared not to want to be there. Katie had gathered enough intelligence of her new subject and was about to speak when he spoke first. Useless, he said. They should have been football players rather than rugby players. Katie couldn't tell if he was joking or being serious. Are they not your team? Katie said. If they were mine, I would have had them packing boxes for the bureaucrats. They don't have the brains to do anything else. Whose are they then? They're the festival organiser's team. He bent my arm to manage them as no one else would. Why? Because they're useless. Katie suggested. They're not winning because of poor discipline and cooperation, and they have little understanding of strategy or use of game tactics. Yes, in summary, useless. And that's why I thought you, my good lady, could be of help. No one here has a clue of how to play this game, and the only ones that do get paid. I'm not a fan of professional sports. I guess I wanted to see if we could win, but it looks like this will be the South's 101st loss. If you're not a rugby coach, what are you then? I am a sports coach. To be more precise, I turn little toe rags and good-for-nothings into champions, but I've not a clue about the ins and outs of egg chasing. Katie continued to talk back and forth with the manager. She discovered his name was John Greaves and that he secretly had a burning desire to make his team of dysfunctional amateurs into a team of battle-hardened winners. Under his authority and guidance, Katie had been given a chance to manage the team. She learned that the game would last for three sunsets, which meant she would have enough time to instil the game of rugby into them. A break was called and the two teams marched off the pitch. The score at half-time was 30-0, which meant, much to the delight of the bureaucrats, that the South team was taking a hammering. The South team sat huddled on the grass at the edge of the pitch, awaiting refreshments of water and oranges. John Greaves walked up to the resting players and said, Who wants oranges? One player with neatly combed blonde hair and clean-cut looks said politely, Yes, Mr Greaves, that would be smashing. You barely deserve water, but if I didn't give it, that'd be goat cruelty. The oranges are for the retired donkeys. They've worked harder than you. The player who was the team's scrum half was shocked. 
Rugby was a game for gentlemen, and he was being compared to a lame animal. Well, I say, he said, which was all he could say. Katie shook nervously behind John Greaves. This was the first time in ages she'd felt shy in a social situation. She loved being surrounded by many strapping male rugby players, but she wasn't used to sharing their domain. John Greaves continued chastising his team. A few of the players noticed Katie. The number five, who was sitting upright on the edge of the pitch, leant back onto his arms and flexed his triceps. After shaking his long golden locks, he stroked his finely groomed stubble. He gave a few fleeting glimpses to catch Katie's attention. She was well aware of his interest, because he wasn't the only one. She gave only few and almost unnoticeable shy glimpses back. She wasn't shy of them. She was shy of being in charge. John Greaves ended his deceptively motivational rant to introduce Katie. Here's a brain. This lady is your new assistant manager, and she knows her stuff. She will give you a lesson, one you should know already. The team murmured in disapproval. Due to their politeness, they weren't outwardly rude, but it was obvious to see that they did not accept their new assistant. John Greaves, as quick as a newt, swatted them. Sorry, I forgot to say, she's also from the Lame Goats charity. We had to beg her, as there's so many other goats more deserving than you. Katie looked back to her watching band of adventurers. Lynx on the edge of his seat shouted, Do your thing, girl! From shyness, Alex slumped deeper into his seat and gave a fist of approval. Wraith had a bemused, tired expression and nodded. In a show of solidarity, Jane flew and perched on her shoulder. She could see the men were not used to a female boss. Katie stepped forward and felt their judging eyes. Many of the looks were in admiration of her beauty, but some were sceptical. The largest player who was forward, responsible for driving the play, said, What now, coach? Katie knew the player was goading her to reveal her irrelevance to the game. She felt her heart rate rise, but it slowed because she remembered this man was part of the reason of why they were 30 nil down. She said abruptly, Fords are responsible for tactics and feeding the scrum half, set pieces and driving and defending play. You, sir, miss lineouts, spend most of the time in the scrum on your knees and you always choose the wrong pass. You've been watching then, he said with a little smirk. Katie went on to describe play and tactics to each and every South team player. Each time she did, the player looked enlightened and paused for thought. A referee wearing white and black stripes stood in the centre of the pitch and whistled. This was the cue to resume play for the second half of the first day. Having been allowed to return to their changing rooms, the North team ran out in military unison, wearing freshly pressed shorts, fresh jerseys and socks pulled up high. John Greaves said in a deep humorous tone, Look, they've changed their kit at half-time, pompous Johnny Pros. Johnny Pro? inquired Katie. A player who wants to look more than he is. The match kicked off with the South team's fly half kicking the ball deep into the North team's half of the pitch. After a few kicks caught and returned, the South team from within the North's half kicked the ball to the touchline. It bounced once and left the pitch. John Greaves said gruffly, A line out, and so close to their try line. That's the best I've seen them do. Katie smiled as if they were her instructions. A line out was prepared. Two sets of eight forward players, the largest lined up opposite each other. The contrast was quite noticeable. The South team had modern grass stains on their kits, whilst the North team's kit had not a mark and smelled profusely of sweet lavender. 
John Greaves, who had moved himself closer to the action, remarked, You lot smell like a beauty parlour. You'd better not get messy, or your dinner dates might stand you up. The South team laughed at their manager's comments, but only to be silenced by him saying, I don't know what you lot are laughing at. Your date's cancelled before you even asked. Both teams made two lines to form a corridor for the ball to be thrown down. Between the two teams, there was a distinct contrast in physical stature. The North team's jerseys hung from their wide shoulders, like they were resting on coat hangers. Their legs resembled thick tree trunks and they looked like they'd been carved from marble by ancient Greek sculptors. The South team's players had a mixture of body types, ranging from very thin to portly. Many players lacked strength and stability, so they wore ankle and knee supports. Their ages were more varied than that of the North team. Some players were very young, and some were old enough to be Katie's dad. The North team's hooker stood on the touchline at the edge of the pitch. He drew the ball back over his head and threw the egg-like ball straight down the corridor. Both teams lifted players like acrobats to catch the ball. The ball was predestined to reach the second-to-last North team player in the line, but to the surprise of the North team, the largest South team forward raised the smallest high into the air and intercepted the ball. Katie's tactics had worked. Now the South team had possession deep within the North team's half and were just five metres away from the try line. After escaping them all, the smallest forward emerged deep in the North team half, clutching the ball in disbelief. Panic and desperation spread amongst the North team because the South team could actually score a try. Seeing North team players coming at him from all angles like Blue Panthers, he froze but was instantly thawed by Katie shouting, Run! In self-preservation, he ran towards the try line. He made it only a few metres when he felt his leg being pulled. He had been caught. Katie saw this and shouted, Winger! Winger! The player looked to his right and saw his winger in open space and screaming for the ball. Crashing to the floor, the little forward flicked back the ball to his teammate. The winger snatched the ball mid-air and dived like a swan for the try line. Try, 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 shouted Katie with absolute delight. Her plan had worked. The terrible South team had scored. The referee blew his whistle and signed a try. A huddle of pink assembled in a tight cluster. The South team were hugging and celebrating. Scoring was a rare occasion, especially scoring a try. The South team would normally only gain points from penalty points made in error. A try was momentous. Katie hopped and clapped her hands together. She was ecstatic that her team had tasted success. She spun around to the others. Lynx jumped and applauded. Feelings of joy and adulation surged around his body. Alec was off his seat and dancing in a circle with Jane. Wraith, however, was seated, cradling his sharp chin. Katie noticed his lips had curved at the edges. He was hiding a smile. John Greaves looked bewildered and confused, or he acted so. He shouted... Number seven, ask the ref how much time is left. The player did so and said, Two sunsets and a bit of today. The team stopped celebrating and listened to their manager who said, At least two sunsets left and you lot are acting like you've won the cup. If this was the Grand National, you'd be only at the second hedge and only the drunk would bet on you to finish. The referee pointed to the spot on the pitch. This was the place to kick for extra points. After a try is scored, the scoring team is given the chance to collect two more points by kicking the ball from distance, through two posts shaped like an H. Katie and John watched the nervous young fly-half kicker place the ball in position and size up the distance and angle needed to take to kick the ball through the white H. 
which was at a right angle. Katie remembered how, when watching with her dad, a sudden silence would fall across the stadium when a player kicked for points. This stadium was uniquely loud. A cacophony of cheers and whistles broke out. The player was showing signs of nerves and could not focus. He struck the planted ball and it sailed wide of the target. Boy, come here, John Greaves said. He trotted up to him sheepishly. Go and ask the groundsman to make the pitch into a zigzag. You'll hit the target then. There was a silence. John didn't say anything else. After an awkward silence, the young player guessed he should get back to the match. John Greaves was a very tough coach. Katie had heard not one encouraging word from him through his gritted teeth. She knew he was a successful coach and thought that there must be a method in his meanness, but she was struggling to see what. She wanted to understand John's approach to coaching. She decided to be direct and said calmly, John, why are you so hard on the team? He paused for a moment and said, Losing cultivates quitters. This team are not quitters. They've lost a hundred times already and keep coming back, Katie joked to ease the moment. His eyes softened and a childlike smile emerged on his face. He fired back. If being a loser was a subject, they would be professors. And if losing was a dinner, they would ask for seconds and thirds, Katie said to keep him laughing. After a few more jokes, he relaxed and talked about his coaching career and why he did it and how he got the best from people. John assumed that most people needed to be saved from their large egos as this stopped honest hard work. Failure was not to be softened or ignored. It was important. He quoted, People must expel failure and definitely not want to lay their heads on its soft, sapping pillow. John was not a modern coach. He was old school. He wanted his players to be lean, mean warriors that were accountable for their actions and only saw themselves as winners. Katie had never been a coach before and she was not fully sure if John's method alone was going to get the South team to make an unprecedented shift in form. The match continued with more toing and froing from either side. The try gave the South team an injection of energy but their momentum was slowing. Both John and Katie had sensed this. John screamed at the forwards to work harder, giving a variety of witty put-down one-liners. A few of the players had responded by playing with extra venom and spite. They tackled hard and furiously, probably because they were imagining John Greaves's face etched into the opposition's buttocks. Some players didn't respond well to being lampooned. Both wingers who were responsible for making darting runs down the flanks clearly had their heads down. They were the youngest of the team, probably Katie's age. Katie was close enough to the winger on the right. She could tell he was avoiding the ball. The lean, slimline winger jogged past the managers and John said, Stay out here, where you're safe, away from those hungry lions. They eat scared gazelles like you. Katie positioned herself further down the edge of the pitch so she could speak to the winger on her own. Number 14, what's your name? Harry. You've got great speed. How come I've only seen you jog? No one is passing to me. That's because you're as silent as a mouse. I think you're afraid of being tackled. No, I get nervous. I'm afraid of ruining the play. It's best for the team if I stay out of it. Rubbish! You are fast, and I've seen you sidestep whilst warming up. You can turn on a pinhead. We need you to receive the final ball and break through the lines. You're the only one with pace and skill to do it. If you don't, no one else will. The team is depending on you to try. All we need is for you to try. 
Try enough and you'll score a try. But what if I fail? Then keep trying and you'll eventually score a try. The clue is in the name. Katie winked and stuck her tongue out at him. Harry laughed and ran back to the game. The South team made frequent successful chains of passes. Harry was now receiving passes and making heroic dashes down the line. Heroic because he was getting brutally tackled and each time he arose, he cleared the mud from his face and rallied back to position. John Greaves stood with his arms crossed and his eyes fixed on the game. Without taking his eyes off it, he said, I thought he was a lost cause. I'd sub him if I despair. Katie replied, He just needed a different way of being told. You're a sweet girl. I bet you have a collection of injured animals at home. How did you know? Because you just saved a lame pigeon. Katie raised her eyebrow and tutted. Katie was always getting told off by her dad for keeping injured animals in their garage. Birds, mice and rabbits, which had been hit by cars or injured by cats, would all be nursed by until Sharon, the animal rescue worker on Katie's quick call list, would come to collect them. To the frustration of Katie, the South team conceded yet another try. To no avail, she yelled and screamed to her players. The noise from the revelling crowd was too loud. The crowd was still paying little attention to the game. They acted like they were in a giant bar, with the match playing quietly in the background. Katie desperately said to John, We need to get support behind our team. He did not share in Katie's urgency and said, They haven't watched the match in a hundred seasons. After yet another awkward silence, Katie left John's side and paced up to her friends, who were also losing interest. Guys, we need a way to get this crowd behind our team. They didn't have any ideas, but Wraith had a question. Why must we help this team? How's it going to help with our quest? I'm sure if we help them, they'll help us. Exactly how? This is a main event. There must be something here to use as trade. Have faith, Wraith. Wraith was a practical man who required certainty. In contrast to Wraith, Katie was a free creative spirit. She didn't plan, but preferred a natural creative flow. They were both polar opposites. The music here is terrible, said Lynx. I could ask the DJ and sink its energy to the match. What do you mean, sink it? asked Wraith. You know, when a team scores a try, I could play special music and give shout-outs and info on the players. Jane interrupted. We can have cheerleaders. That'll turn some heads. We have to make sure there's a mixture of hot men cheerleading too, Katie said with a giggle. In search of the sound system, Lynx skipped off into the chaotic crowd. He was very persuasive and assumed he'd be able to convince whoever was in charge to let him control what he called the wheels of steel sound system. Alex's job was to scout the crowd for would-be cheerleaders and once found, teach them a dance routine. He was daunted by this, as he'd only just learnt how to dance and approaching people made him nervous. Jane was going to use her extensive experience of bar service to set up one near the pitch. The aim would be to disrupt the flow of the drink's camel train and direct the focus back onto the game. Wraith remained uninvolved. Alex stood at the foot of the stadium, looking up at the vast crowd stretching to the sky. Needing courage, he looked for a bar. Within the aisles, a train of drink carriers were coming out from the exit tunnels. He bolted down the nearest to him. He sidestepped and turned sideways to allow the busy outflow of people past him. The end of the tunnel opened out into a corridor, providing toilets and plenty of bars. 
Desperate to urinate, he decided to dive into the closest toilet and found a position free in the urinals. Standing calmly, waiting to ease his bladder, a man next to him wearing a blue jersey began speaking drunk nonsense to him. Great day for it. So pleased I made it down. The beer's great, said the urinating man. Alec froze. He had stage fright. He hated conversations when urinating. The man to the left of him began talking too, queuing the whole toilet to burst into a drunken chatter. Alec didn't want anybody thinking he was there just for fun, so he pretended to urinate, which required some acting. He washed his hands and grimly shook the hand of the chatting, urinating man, grimly because he noticed the man had not washed his hands. Leaving the toilet with a full bladder, he decided to switch the desire for a pint to shots. Luckily the queue was empty, so he paced his way over. The barman, dressed all in black with a ruby rugby logo stitched into his shirt, said, Sorry, I can't serve you. You've had enough. Alec was startled by the barman's refusal and said, I haven't drunk anything. Not according to her. Alec noticed that Jane was flying next to him. Why, Jane? Come on, we all know how you'll end up. It's best you don't drink. We must help Katie. But I need to so I can talk to people. You've drink-blocked me. And he stormed off down the tunnel. He wasn't really angry. He just wanted an excuse to slip from Jane. He had a backup plan. Alec emerged from the tunnel. His reticular activating system was set. When in need, your mind can filter and focus on what you desire. Like a forager looks for red berries and notices red, Alec was noticing anyone with a particular flask. A whiskey flask, to be exact. He ran up several steps and walked to the middle of a row and sat in an empty seat next to a man. The man was wearing a pink jersey, jeans and a bag. The bag was a tackle bag and poking from its straps was a silver flask. Bingo, thought Alec. Alec struck up a conversation with the man about fishing and before he knew it, he was sharing swigs from his flask. Alec naughtily watched Jane buzz around the stadium, looking for him. He was inconspicuous because he had asked to borrow a woman's large novelty hat. From under that hat's large rim, he drank at a great pace. Alcohol surged into his bloodstream. Alec's vision was blurry, but his legs still worked. He had just got to the magic pint of being tipsy. Making his way down the stairs, he felt his full painful bladder. A few droplets of urine leaked out. He had very little time. He walked cross-legged into the tunnel, aiming straight for the toilets, but gave up. Relief and a calming sensation clouded over him. Waterfalls and running streams filled his mind and the sound of a trickling stream echoed off the walls. While he urinated in the tunnel, the urine collected into a stream which ran downhill and underneath the people's feet. Ew! cried a woman. That man is peeing on the wall! Alec was drunk. His natural shyness had been drunk away. People were pointing and laughing and some were very cross. After he'd stopped and made himself presentable, he was lifted up by two very large security men. Alec was being airlifted from the event. Urinating in public was definitely not permitted. He found himself cast out next to Blue, who was fast asleep. Mr Gamble, the ticket man, was surprised to see him and said, It's very hard to be thrown out of a free event. What did you do? I urinated in public. That'll do chuckled Mr Gamble. Alec explained he needed to get back to help Katie and the others. He didn't want to be a letdown. Mr Gamble only offered one laughable idea. It was to scale the mountain. Alec wasn't laughing. He liked it. 
He awoke Blue from her deep sleep and whispered into her satellite dish-sized ear, Want to come and watch a match? We can both sneak in. Blue agreed to carry Alec up the mountain, only because Alec said there were huge jellied eels to be had. After a very long time of climbing, they reached the summit of the mountain and gazed down. Below them was the stadium. Luckily, there were plenty of rosefree at the top with no security. Blue pounced and dropped several metres into the stadium below. Her paws steadied herself on three empty rows of seats. The spectators below almost jumped out of their seats. Alec calms them by craftily saying, It's okay, she won't eat you as long as she's well fed. She loves jelly deals. Blue, who had Alec mounted on her back, said, You do realise, in comparison to yours, my brain is several times larger. You weren't going to give me any jelly deals, were you? Suddenly, like mortar rockets, pots of jellied eels began raining down. The spectators below were throwing all they had up. Eat up, you lovely fat cat, said Alec whilst patting her head. Such a big stomach to match such a big brain of yours. Alec jumped off Blue and explained what he must do. She agreed to stay where she was. She'd eaten too much and needed to sleep. Skipping down the stairs, he told the frightened spectators, Keep an eye on her, will you? She's having a sleep. She loves strokes and keep her well fed. She's bad-tempered when she's hungry. With their mouths open and hair on end, the terrified crowd nodded in agreement. Now Alec was free to find some cheerleaders and complete his mission. Katie had watched her team fall further behind. They were forty to five down. From shouting, Katie's voice had turned hoarse. John Greaves took an empty seat next to Wraith. The match finished at sunset. It was halfway past midday, meaning there was a quarter of the match left to play. Katie desperately wanted the team to finish well, so during the post-match team talk, she could build their confidence. Oi oi! How we doing? Ruby rugby! said Lynx over the sound system. His catchy one-liners echoed around the stadium. The crowd reacted to answering them. When I say Ruby, you say rugby! screamed the crowd. Lynx made the crowd cheer together. He made up chants and team songs so the crowd could support both teams. Who's supporting the South team today? Say yeah! And who's supporting the North? Say ooh-ah! The crowd found Lynx hilarious. The North team scored yet another try. He capitalised on the moment to encourage the North team fans to celebrate. The South team fans remained frustratingly seated, wondering if they'd get a chance to roar with joy. Alec led out a line of cheerleaders onto the edge of the pitch, and to Katie's delight, they were male and female. They wore the colours of the South team. They began performing routines which boosted the team's morale. The atmosphere increased its electric energy. Lynx kept impartial because the sound system was for all to hear. The South team crowd starting interacting with the cheerleaders and then chanted, Amateurs we are, but professional we slay. South team all the way. The South team increased their play, tackles were more ferocious and more daring runs were made. Jane had organised a temporary drink stand near the pitch. The punters in the queue had lost interest in drinking and became absorbed in the fast-moving match. Jane's plan had worked. The South team had clawed back 15 points and by the time the sun had set, the score was 40-22. to 22. This was the closest in a 100 seasons. The South team had been to the north in points. The whistle blew and the jubilant South team players paraded from the pitch. The crowd gave both teams a standing ovation. 
John Greaves was red and fuming with rage. He could not understand why his team, who were losing, acted as if they were indeed winning. In a formative line, the muscular men of the North team left the pitch. When passing Katie, they took note of their advisory. Some looked her up and down, while others gave her deep and intense stares. In response to some, she bowed her head and averted her eyes. But to a couple, she held their gaze. The South team invited Katie and the others back to the team's camp. They were led away from the stadium and into the valley. Several tents had been erected as a camp for the team to rest and prepare. Surrounding the camp were other camps and groups of revellers partying. Around a crackling campfire, John Greaves addressed the team. He was short and lambasting, and then he handed the speaker's spot to an uneasy Katie. She had no prior experience of public speaking. She could talk easily to individuals, but a large group made her feel nervous. John Greaves had left the campfire to rest for the night. Katie stood alone in front of her seated, newly adopted players. She felt her hands calm with sweat, and when she thought of words, only a blank whiteboard appeared in her mind. Katie felt a squeeze on her wrist. It was Wraith. He whispered into her ear, You have won their respect. Now say what couldn't be said during the match. Wraith left her side and took his place next to the crackling fire. Wraith's words reverberated around her mind. She remembered how frustrated she felt that so many of her team couldn't hear her instructions. Replaying the game in her mind, the blank whiteboard became filled with notes. She started by praising her team for their great effort. She continued the praising until she noticed that some began to lose interest and started to talk amongst themselves. She realised she had made her opening speech too gratifying and not specific. Alec performed sign language, illustrating to Katie to reel them back in. Katie acknowledged this and dived verbally into the team's technical faults. This section of her speech was very revealing and insightful. Katie had noticed poor running patterns, bad positional behaviour and lack of faith in each other. No player had been left out from Katie's thorough scrutiny. Katie had captured her audience's attention but had left them demoralised. She needed to boost her team back up. She went on to say what they had done well. Players who had received criticism were lifted back with acknowledgements of good plays. Katie felt the team's self-esteem rise and the energy on her team was now buoyant. She used this moment to say what must be done in the next match. South team, tomorrow we must play harder and faster, and we reunite here after sunset. We shall be planning and building on our great lead. She finished her speech by encouraging everyone to give themselves a round of applause, and whilst clapping, many said, Thanks, coach. Katie's nerves and anxieties were replaced with a feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction. She had defeated her fear of public speaking. Pleased, she found a place with her friends next to the campfire. Link said with delight, Katie, Katie, was that your first team talk? Yes, it was. How did it go? Great, you were just given your first poo sandwich. Jane, Alec and even Wraith laughed. Katie wasn't laughing and said, I don't get it, what's that? It's a speech with a good start followed by a critical middle and a positive finish. If it was a sandwich, I think you'd guess what it would be. Lynx giggled and continued. It's okay, babe. It works. Managers dish them out and players gobble them up all the time. Katie giggled too and replied, I needed a way to give constructive criticism. And you did. They devoured your poo sandwich, crust and all, said Lynx, sniggering. 
Rafe laid back on the short grass of the encampment. He could hear many muffled conversations of players and Jane and Alec deep in conversation about sea storms. He gazed up at the sky. The night sky stretched across his vision and he marvelled at the twinkling stars, which looked like diamonds on a smart black velvet jacket. The stars strangely disappeared from sight. Thick hair blinded him and filled his mouth. He couldn't breathe. His whole body jiggled and vibrated from a loud humming noise. He managed to shout, Blue! Get off me! Blue had seen her opportunity and had sat on her significantly smaller master. For a few moments, Blue was happy and purred with purry love, but she soon jolted up when Wraith wriggled frantically free. Wraith escaped to a reception of hysterical laughter. Katie had tears in her eyes and was looking at Blue adoringly and said, Oh, Blue, Daddy is too small to be sat on. Wraith crossly added, Daddy, I'm not her father. If you haven't noticed, I have two legs, not four. Well, I don't think there is any reasoning with her. She thinks you're her daddy. Pulling hair from his mouth, Wraith uttered, This quest just gets more and more bizarre. Wraith, accepting his new parental duties, lay back on Blue's belly and she formed a protective half-moon around him. They both fell fast asleep.